Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I'm going to read beginning in verse 15. So if you have a Bible, follow along with me as I read God's word here publicly to all of us. He is, that's Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Lord, I agree with what Jeff prayed. I pray for your power this morning. Lord, we believe you manifest your power through your word and the preaching of your word, and we pray for that kind of manifestation this morning. Speak, Lord. We urgently need to hear your voice. Amen. Clichés are usually clichés for a reason. Oftentimes, they have a nugget of truth that, though it be repeated way too often and with too much glib, Sometimes cliches have an offer, good advice. Now, one of the most appropriate cliches I'm aware of is this. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. A close cousin is there's no such thing as a free lunch, or nothing in life is free. But the wisdom that is strung along these words, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is, is advice I wish I had heeded when I bought my second car by myself. It was super cheap had super low miles, it was super reliable, but it salvaged. the title was salvaged. I didn't really understand what that meant, but that's okay. Super cheap, super low mileage, super reliable, and super not what it seemed to be. The price was too good to be true. Now, when it comes to buying cars, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But with Jesus, it's different. I'm not sure what you thought of when we read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, but these descriptors of Jesus sound good, almost too good to be true. Is Jesus too good to be true? We heard words and phrases like, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And all things were created through him, and not only that, and for him. You hear these phrases piled up describing Jesus, and you might think, too good to be true. Now, one of the things the scriptures consistently do, and Colossians is no exception, is not merely announce the supremacy of Jesus, but proves the supremacy of Jesus. 
today we're going to see that all this superlative talk is much more than talk. And Jesus is not just good. He's not too good to be true. We don't even know the half of it. The point of Colossians is simple, but should stir our souls. Jesus is supreme. He's supreme over all things. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 gives us proof. Because when I say Jesus is supreme, you should say, why? Why is he supreme? The scriptures never ask, take my word for it. No, the scriptures say, I'm going to prove this to you. And here we have that proof in four parts. Here is how we know Jesus is supreme. First, he is, verse 15, the image of the invisible God. You see that in verse 15? He is the image of the invisible God. Now, image can mean a great many different things, so we need to understand what Paul means when he uses the word image here. Sometimes the best way to understand a word is to find out what it does not mean. Here, image does not mean bearing a resemblance. Neither does it mean similar to. Neither does it mean likeness. Neither does it mean a chip off the old block, or a lot like, or kind of. Jesus, you can see in verse 15, it doesn't say Jesus is an image of the invisible God. Do you see that? The word is the. That is a definite article. That means that Jesus is the unique and sole image of God, the way Paul is talking about it here. It means that Jesus has always, from eternity past, present, and future, exactly mirrored the Father in his purpose, will, and character. One theologian said, Jesus is the exact representation of God. And Jesus himself in John chapter 14 can say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is in no way less than the Father. Jesus has the same authority as the Father. He's not an apprentice God. Jesus is not God Jr. In him, verse 19 says, all the fullness of God dwells. As much as God is God, Jesus is God. (coughs) God and Jesus have the same attributes, the same power, the same character, the same desires. Let's take another step here. If you know your Bibles, you're familiar with the creation account. You're familiar with the words image of God that show up way back in Genesis chapter 1 as Moses wrote down how the world was created. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So notice the language of similarity there. This is different than he is the image of the invisible God. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God created mankind, both man and woman. Both men and women reflect or have the likeness of the image of God. Mankind, all of us in this room, were created to resemble and bear the likeness to God. Do you ever wonder what image mankind reflects? The image of the invisible God. 
Jesus. Who's the model? Or to use a big word, the archetype. Who is the archetype of the image of God that we resemble? Jesus. He is the image. We were created in his likeness. He is the archetype, the original, the model. We were modeled after him. And so our purpose, in part, both men and women, is to reflect the likeness of Jesus in our lives. Now the world is a fallen and broken place, and humanity, by and large, is bound by the power of sin. We all know the story. God made us for himself, and we ran from him. The world is fallen because humanity didn't want to merely be in the likeness of God. Humanity wanted to be God. Jesus came to draw, him, draw us back. In his life, we see authentically what God intended humanity to be. In his life on earth, this is what God intended humanity to be. We have opportunity, each individually, but even more corporately, to reflect the image of God to people who don't know what God is like. We reflect the image of God when in our church, we as a community love each other and love others. When good deeds and good works resound from this place. And no individual can represent God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit alone. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are in community and we must be in community as well. made after his image. Whose image? Jesus' image. Jesus is supreme. That's not the only reason we get for his supremacy. We also see in verse 15, in the next phrase, something else. Not only is he the image of the invisible God, but also he is the firstborn of all creation. Did you see that in verse 15? He is the firstborn in of all creation. Now, when you hear the word firstborn, you might think that that means that Jesus is a created being, that he had a beginning. A man named Arius taught that exact thing in the fourth century. So, what are we to make of firstborn and that word? Now, at the time of this book, the, time, the original writing of this book here in Colossians, all the readers understood inheritance laws. They knew that all wealth, all property, all status, all authority, all titles would transfer from the father to the firstborn son. So in this context, in verse 15, firstborn means most important. Like the boss or the leader, the principal. Now we would never say that Jeff Bezos is the firstborn of Amazon. He's the CEO. But that's the idea. If we said Jeff Bezos is the firstborn of Amazon, that's just weird. But that's the way they spoke about it back then. Jeff Bezos is the CEO 
of Amazon and therefore the most important and the most influential member of Amazon. Jesus, by contrast, is the most important of all creation. He is supreme over all creation. Why? When you read Scripture, you always got to ask, why? Don't just take things for granted. Why? Verse 15, here's how we know He is preeminent or supreme over all creation. Verse 16, for by Him, again, the Him is Jesus, all things were created. He is the creator of all things. Think about that. Jesus is the creator of all things. You know if you work with your hands and you build something from nothing and you build it, it becomes yours because you created that. Jesus created all things. Therefore, he owns all things. On earth only? No, no, actually in heaven, verse 16. And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things. How many things? All things. He's the creator of how many things? All things. What things? All things. Which things? All things. <coughs> Jesus is the one who created all things. Therefore, Jesus has to be cre- distinct from creation. The creator cannot also be created. That would not make any sense. He is firstborn. He is supreme over the created order because he created the created order. He created those things we can see and those things we can't see. Whether it be dust floating in this room, a dust particle floating in this room, or a star twinkling in a distant sky, he is supreme because he created both. Whether it be a leaf on a tree in Finland or Mount Kilimanjaro rising from the African desert floor, he is supreme because he created both. Whether it be your left ring finger or an asteroid hurtling through deep space, he is supreme because he created both. That's why he's supreme. But there's another reason. I don't know if you saw it when we read in verse 16. We have a step further. Not only were all things created through him, look at the next three words, and for him. If it's not impressive enough that Jesus, the image of the invisible God, equal with God, God the Son, created all things, not only did he create all things, he's the point of all things. All things were created for him. He's not only the means of creation, but he alone is the goal of all creation. He is the the creator of all things and the purpose of all creation. He created all things for himself, even me and even you. You ever wondered what the point of your life is? Why are you here? What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to be? Verse 16 tells us right here, very clearly. All things were created through him and for him. And because we belong to all things, we are created for him. You were created for him. He is your purpose. You live to please Jesus. And in fact, we can go so far as to say this. We don't know what we're supposed to be or who we're supposed or what we're supposed to be or who we're supposed what we're supposed to do if we do not understand our connection to Jesus. Now that's very un-American. 
But we can say with confidence that we don't understand who we are unless we understand that we're made for Jesus. We can say with confidence that we aren't, we're not going to be able to understand what we are to do unless we understand that we're made for Jesus. We can say with strength and conviction that we don't understand who we are to be unless we can understand that we're made for Jesus. We can say we cannot determine our own identity if we do not understand we were made for Jesus. In fact, we do not have the freedom to determine our identity. Someone else has. Verse 17 sums up his supremacy over the whole created order. Verse 17, and he is before all things. Not only did he create all things, not only are all things for him, he's most important. We saw that already with firstborn, but we see it again. Not only that, but here's how strong he is. In him, all things hold together. So the reason that our universe holds together is not because of some gravitational force, but because primarily of Jesus. He holds all things together. The science behind the science is a man. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. So we need to ask ourselves, even in a cursory way here as we Continue to walk through this passage. He's supreme in all creation. Is he supreme in your life? Let's be clear, clear about that question. Is he supreme? Is he most important? I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer when you were nine. Or if you know a lot about the Bible. Or if you've had past spiritual experiences. Or if the Lord has used you in powerful ways in the past. Or if you know a lot of theology or try and do good or you go to church, or you've been baptized. No, we're asking something much more fundamental. Is Jesus the one who is before all things, or are other things before Jesus in your life? I think we all have to ask that question. We all have to consider that. The stars that twinkle in space and are called out night by night by name by the Creator, there is none before Him for them. But we... Men and women, we can forget what we're about. We can forget that he is to be before all things in our lives as well. So is there something before him in your life? Maybe it's money, some relationship, your job, your family, leisure, exercise, travel, education, happiness. Is he before all of those things? If he's not, your life won't make sense. He is before all things. He is the point of all things. In him, all things hold together. In other words, Jesus is supreme. And it's not too good to be true. We've seen that in two different ways. We've seen he is the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. We've seen he is the firstborn of creation. But there's more. He is the head of the church. Now that seems to make very little sense. We go from talking about Jesus being the supreme creator and sustainer over all creation to now talking about the church. 
Either Paul doesn't know what he's talking about or the church is that important. The answer is B. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Let's think about this. Jesus, we're just told that Jesus is supreme over the entire created order. And then the next conversation topic is the church. Now, that doesn't seem to follow. Who is the church? It's not a building. It's not an institution. It's the people of God. So we go from everything created by him and sustained by him now to a conversation about the people of God. Now, true confessions, I watched a lot of Star Trek, a lot, when it was lame and when it got cooler and when it was retro and, you know, all of it. In all the episodes of Star Trek, never once did Captain Kirk lean over to Spock and say, you know, seeing this vast universe, this vast expanse of space, really up, up close, really makes me think of the people of God. That was never a topic of an episode, how the church relates to the people, on, to people traveling through space on Star Trek. That, that's not an episode. Neither was, is this National Geographic published a pictorial, pictorial edition of the breathtaking sights of Yellowstone and how it relates to the people of God. That's not, that idea sounds ludicrous. But notice the connection. Notice the connection. We're not making it up. Here it is from verse 17. Look again. Look at verse 17. Watch this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Instead of talking about some kind of miraculous ability he has in creation, he starts to talk about new creation, the church. Now notice, what is Jesus described as when it comes to his people? Do you see? He is the head. Now, in creation, we saw that he is the one that sustains all things by the very word of his power. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the point of all creation. But at the same time, it cannot be said that he is the head of creation. He's not connected to creation the way he is connected to his people. Creation's important, but not as much as his people. The life and the vitality of the people of God come from her head, Jesus Christ. The power and the strength come from her head, Jesus Christ. This means much more than if we were to draw an org chart of the church that Jesus would, would find his way to the top. It says something much more. The church, the people of God, are uniquely and forever connected to Jesus. Jesus is the head and the source of her life. Christ has an organic, real-life connection to his people that he does not have with creation. He's not the head of the Andromeda Galaxy. He's not the head of the Redwoods. He sustains them. He created them. But he's the head of his church. Our church is alive and vital only to the degree to which we are meaningful, meaningfully connected to Jesus. To take another step, and we can say, if Jesus uniquely associates himself with his people... There must be something unique about the church. In creation, 
We don't have a story of Jesus asking somebody to create on his behalf. He did it all. Yet in the story of redemption, we have now people like you and like me who are meant to go forth preaching the good news and showing the good works of the gospel at the behest of Jesus. And the words and the deeds we do as people believe the gospel and get meaningfully connected to the people of God and connect themselves with the head, the Jesus, we see something happening that's different. You know, in all the universe, among all things created, all the powers, there is no power that can destroy the people of God. None. There is no threat to our eternal destiny. Will people oppose us? Absolutely. Will we be persecuted? Most definitely. Are we going to be marginalized? Absolutely, we are now. May we even be terrorized? Yes. But can we be destroyed? No. Because we're connected to Jesus. Not because we're unique. The one supreme over gravity is the very one who has chosen a people to be his very own. And it's more likely than those laws of gravity collapse than than his protection for his people and his purposes for his people wane. You see, in our world, it doesn't seem like the church, the people of God, is very important. It seems small. The things we do, worship, singing, fellowship, trusting Jesus on a daily basis, reading our Bible, loving each other, Those things seem unimportant. They seem small. That's not true. Why? Because we have a degree of importance embedded in us? No, because we're connected to our head, Jesus. Jesus gets his work done in the world through his people in ways he doesn't use in any other organization. There is no other organization or institution or society, no association or assembly as important as the people of God. God primarily uses his people to bring about his purposes in the world. God may use politicians from time to time to do good things, but he always uses his church. God may use social action from time to time to bring about good things, but he always uses his church. God may use doctors to heal the sick and bring hope, but he always uses his church. God may use philanthropists to do good deeds, but he always works through and uses his church. God may use corporations, but he always uses his church. And none of those organizations or societies or associations can say, Christ is our head. And you know what? The church can. We can. We're connected not just to each other, but we're connected to Jesus. We have to ask, are we all meaningfully connected to others? There is no such thing as a Christian who's connected to Jesus but not his people. That's right here in the text. Are you meaningfully connected, if it's not to this church, to a church? If not, why not? 
He's not too good to be true. He's supreme. We've seen he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is head of the body, the church. And lastly, we see he is firstborn from the dead. There's that word again. Firstborn from the dead. The meaning here is easier to understand than it was in verse 15. Look again at verse 18. He is the head of the church, the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the firstborn from the dead. He died and yet rose again. You can say he was born again into new life. He proved his preeminence by defeating death once and for all. Think about it this way. He is supreme over creation because he created all things. He is supreme over the church because he died for her and rose again. What did it cost him to create all things? It wasn't hard, I would imagine. If you're omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, bunch of omnis, you can do things we can't even consider. And so it makes sense that he would be preeminent over creation because he created everything. But here we see his preeminence is shown by his death and resurrection for his people. What did that cost? That cost everything. That cost everything. He is supreme over creation because he created all things. He is supreme over us and all the people of God and all creation because he died and lives again. He died for us. You see, that's what we see in verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Notice we don't have any description of location except there. Of all the places in the universe to draw attention to, we, our eyes are drawn not to the dark side of Europa or a wandering comet, or a beautiful landscape, but to the cross, the place of the crucifixion of our head, the place of the death of Jesus, because in that place, Jesus made peace at the cost of his blood. And he's beginning to recreate things. Because of sin, though Christ made and sustains all things, All things are not as they should be. But instead of destroying all things and starting over, he did something else. Now think about it this way. Think about this. If you were the creator of all things and one of your creatures decides, forget you, I want to take your place, what do you do? Well, you destroy it and start over. That's what I do. Is that what our Lord did? No. He could have destroyed creation and gotten rid of the curse of sin and death by building another world and doing something else and starting all over, but instead of destroying all things, he became like his creation and was destroyed so that we might have life to make peace. He did something we would not do. 
He is preeminent. He is supreme. Not just in his abilities, but in what he's done. He didn't say, forget this, let's do it all over. He said, huh, here I come. And I'm going to make peace. No one's asking for it. Nobody's looking for me, but I'm coming. And I'm going to make peace. And I'm going to be the firstborn from the dead. That means I'm going to have to die, but I'll live again forevermore. And so now, Jesus is recreating mankind through the message of the gospel, starting with his people, the church, because he's head over the church. More than any people on the planet, we ought to be people who reflect the the supremacy of Christ in our lives. Because he is our head. He lives and he lived and died and rose again for us. He is the firstborn of all creation. And he is the one. Because he died and lives again, we can know that when we die, we live. Because he's made peace. Now, following him does not mean that our lives are going to be too good to be true. Or that they'll be full of peace, harmony, and joy all the time. But it does mean when we follow Jesus, we follow the one in charge. We follow the supreme one. He's supreme. Let me ask this question as we wrap up. Is he supreme in your life? Is he supreme in your life? Don't think about your husband or your wife or your cousin who should be here listening to this. But you, is he supreme over your life? There's no star pinned in the heavens that challenges his authority and supremacy. But do you? There's no tide that challenges his timetable to keep its daily rhythms because he's authoritative. But do you reflect his his supremacy? How can you tell if he's supreme in your life? What do you talk about? What do you wish for? What do you care about most? What do you give your time to? Where do you spend your money? What do you daydream about? Those are the things that are supreme. Is Jesus supreme? Even as believers, even as followers of Jesus, we can think, oh, because I believe the right things or read the Bible or pray or whatever, then I'm okay. But what we must think is Christ is supreme. He must be supreme in my life. Is he? Or are you living in a pattern of secrecy? Or a sinful disobedience? Have people tried to help you and you pushed them away? And we all know we fall short. None of us are who we should be. None of us reflect the supremacy of God in Christ the way we should. But are we authentic? If not, ask for help. That's the thing. There's no... There's no incantation that we need to say. There's no tradition that we need to come along, we need to do to to be able to put him back as the supreme one in our life. All we need to do is ask for help. Lord, help me. And the one who sustains all things, who's not too good to be true, is good enough always to respond in grace to you. Is he supreme? Yes. But is he supreme in your life? If not, let's 
ask the last question. How do we make him our supreme desire? We ask him for help. This is not something we can do on our own. We can't. We need him to put the desire in our hearts, to want to have him as supreme over our lives. Ask. Say, Lord, help me. Help me to reflect your glory. Help me to reflect your purpose. Help me to realize that I'm here for you and not myself. Those things are counterintuitive. It's not the way we normally think. Help us to remember that our tongues are to be used for his glory and our thoughts for him and our hands to work for him and, his, and our minds to make much of him. We're not called to sell everything and go off and, and pursue some kind of some kind of trek. We're called to be where we are in every moment, living with him as supreme. And if he's not your supreme desire, and let's be real, all of us can grow in that way. May we be a people who asks him to become our supreme desire. As we do, we will not be disappointed because he's not too good to be true. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would revive us, starting with me. But there's so many different ways that I fall short of recognizing your supremacy. Sometimes I think I'm owed this or that. I'm not. I've been the recipient of grace. Thank you. Lord, I pray that all of us would lean into you, and I pray that we would have a desire to put you as supreme in our lives, Lord. I pray for any here who are living double lives, secret lives, or they're dabbling in some kind of secret sin. I pray that you would convict them, Lord, to help them recognize that is just, it's not the way to go. I pray for all of us, though, Lord, I pray that you would meet us by your presence and according to your power. You are supreme. Show yourself to be supreme by the power that we, that for in our lives. Lord, give us the power to say no to ungodliness and sinful desires. Give us the power to take the next step. Give us the power to have, to want to follow you and follow you. Help us to want you more, Lord. Pray for any here who are not followers of you, Lord. I pray that you would birth a desire in their heart to follow you. Lord, may you revive us, Lord. Awaken those that are asleep and stir those that are awake. Thank you, Jesus, for not being too good to be true. Amen.